Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series, the number one podcast for brain injury and concussion resources. I am Amy Zalmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I'm going to be chatting with professional cyclist and author Catherine Bertine. If you're enjoying this podcast series, be sure to check out my Patreon page to help support my advocacy work, including this podcast. You can find it at patreon.com slash Amy Zalmer. This episode is brought to you by Integrated Brain Centers. Located in Denver, Colorado, Drs. Shane Stedman and Perry Maynard are experts in functional neurology and treat complex concussion cases from around the country. With over 20 years of combined experience, they are leaders in helping patients who are suffering from post-concussion symptoms, including dizziness, vertigo, headaches, and more. For a free consultation, you can find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. Hello, I am Amy Zalmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not be familiar with who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I am a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Good Men Project, and I am author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, available on Amazon. Additionally, I am editor-in-chief of The Brain Health Magazine, and you can get your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. Please be sure to save the date for March 16th. I am hosting a virtual Brain Injury Awareness Day event, and you can register for free at facesoftbi.com slash event. You can also learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com, and be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zalmer. I also invite you to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Catherine Bertine, and Catherine built her professional cycling career as a three-time Caribbean champion, six-time national champion of St. Kitts and Nevis, and five-year veteran of professional cycling who rode with UCI domestic and world tour teams. Off the bike, she has been an ESPN contributor and senior editor for ESPNW and author of three nonfiction books. As an advocate for equality in women's sports, she started the, the social activism movement Le Tour Entier in an effort to bring parity to women's professional road cycling, starting with the Tour de France. She and her team succeeded, and the women's field was included in 2014 with the addition of La Course by Tour de France. Her award-winning documentary, Half the Road, The Passion, Pitfalls, and Powers of Women's Professional Cycling, gives a glimpse into the trials women face in this sport. In 2017, she founded and currently serves as CEO for Homestretch Foundation, a 501c3, which provides free housing to female professional athletes struggling with the gender pay gap. A native of Bronxville, New York, she lives in Tucson, Arizona. She holds a BA from Colgate University and an MFA from the University of Arizona. So welcome to the podcast, Catherine. I'm so excited to have you here. 
Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me, and thank you for all that you do for the awareness and education of TBI. It's really fantastic. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to have you here today. It is an honor to have you here sharing um, your journey. And I think, you know, I would love to just have you start by just sharing your TBI journey. Um, you know, one can imagine being a professional cyclist is, um, you know, there's there's a lot of risk in that sport that I think people don't often realize. Um, so let's. Mm-hmm. why don't you start by sharing your story? Sure, absolutely. So it's very common in the world of bike racing to have crashes, you know, especially in road racing where you're amongst a very close-knit group of competitors, which is called the peloton. And it's it's very um, very normal to have crashes, you know, and maybe breaking a collarbone or an arm, but it's pretty rare to have some serious trauma to, to the brain. Um, and I got to be the lucky of this impact in 2016. So I'm actually, we're just coming up on the uh, five-year anniversary of this crash. And uh, I was down racing at the Vuelta Femenil in Mexico. This is heading into an Olympic year. So it was a lot of feisty racing. Um, points for qualification were on the line and heading into the last mile of a 64-mile race, um, a rider ahead of me made an error, and she she crashed. And, but I was the first person to vault over her when she when she fell, and uh, got to be the lucky recipient of being on the bottom of a mass pileup. And um, in that crash, I struck my head on the pavement. Of course, I remember none of this. By the way, this is all what's relayed to me by by others and I'm striking. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like I have a perfect view of what happened, but no, these are are all told to me later. Um, But I did, I hit the right side of my head very, very hard. And I broke my skull twice um, along with my collarbone, which doctors later told me probably saved my life having the impact of the collarbone shatter first. Um, And then hit my head twice, broke two bones. Uh, This, into seizures and luckily in the sport of cycling we have a it's mandatory that at the professional level a doctor is following in the caravan behind the race mm-hmm. and when the doctor got up to the crash uh, he started timing my seizures and saw that I wasn't coming out of them in enough time and uh, ran back to the car got um, a syringe, the equivalent of Addison, uh down there, and injected me with with this with enough time so that the Adivan slow the seizures before you know the uh, the ambulance arrived because that was that was taking its time to get there. And uh, because of his action, because the seizures were able to slow, and I was able to eventually come out of them. That's really what saved my life that day. Um, and then was, you know, transported to the hospital. I spent the first week in the hospital in Mexico and then was airlifted to, uh, back to Tucson and spent the next two weeks in various hospitals there, uh, first the um, ICU and then the um, trauma recovery hospital. So it was quite an ordeal, um, something that really technical, technically could have killed me at the time, right on the spot. And, um, right. You know, so that was uh, that's something else. And 
Yeah, that was so that's the story of the impact itself. Um, and I have I have small fleeting memories of that time in the hospital. As you can imagine, I was mostly on um, you know morphine and other cocktails of uh, <laughs> you know of whatever it is that we're on when we're in the ICU suffering um, a TBI. So small memories of of that time, and I can only imagine what you know, my, my family and loved ones must have been going through not knowing if I would come out of this at all. So, you know, what, what was your recovery like, you know, here you've been in the hospital uh, and then you get released. Um, what, what was your plan as they released you from the hospital? Yeah. Great, great question. So I spent the next, Oh, almost two months. I think it was, yeah, it was two months. I spent the next two months on my father's couch um, so that I could have uh, complete surveillance, you know, all the time. Um, And, you know, I was on Keppra, which is an anti-seizure medication. And one of the effects of Keppra is it makes you very tired. So I was um, sleeping 10 to 12 hours a night. And it's a really good thing because obviously the brain needs that time heal too. So uh, during that time, I remember sleeping a lot um, and limited screen time, um, watching, you know, TV if I could. Uh, and I love reading. That was a challenge at first, for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Being able to just, you know, concentrate on words on a page. Who knew that that would be something that's so challenging? Um, luckily, here we are now, five years later, and my symptoms are very, very, very mild. Um, but back then in the immediate aftermath, I would say fatigue is the greatest issue. Um, secondly, was anything rapidly moving in terms of um, screens? Uh, for example, I, you know, watching an action movie was out of the question. Um, mm, too yeah. many, you know, yeah, that rapid fire movement. Uh, my brain did not like that at all. <laughs> mm. um, and also, you know, I think for those first few months, I have a friend who described me as very bland in personality. <laughs> um, and I love that description. Yeah. Because, you, know, you know, looking back, too, that's pretty much how I felt internally yeah, as well. Like, yeah. Okay. You know, the way that we all are if we're recovering, pre-planned. <laughs> um and let's see, another thing was, you know, being a writer, um, I, I would type words that made sense in my head, but my fingers would type something else. Um, it wasn't mm-hmm. like a constant stream of gibberish, but, you know, every now and then I would just think a word and what my fingers typed was something totally different. And I thought that was very fascinating. That doesn't happen mm-hmm. so much anymore, but every now and then if it does, I write it down and I save it. And I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, you know, but back then too, I think the, the, the big key was going through the waiting process, you know, because it takes time for a brain to heal and nobody was sure uh, you know, how much would I remember? How much wouldn't, or where would, where would my brain fall, you know, in the spectrum of healing? Um, so it, you know, the doctor said, we'll give you the full clear once you're a year out. 
Um, but just go with it because everything is different for everybody who suffers a brain injury. So don't make comparisons. Just, you know, listen to stories, listen to what other people who have gone through an injury might have to say, but don't think that that's going to be your case necessarily. So I just kind of rolled with it and had checkups. Well, first I was doing physical therapy, and so I would have a lot of checkups in the first few months. But in terms of the brain check-ins, that was happening once every three months just to see, you know, where was I on the spectrum. And, um, uh, you know, I should have mentioned this before. The actual TBI that um, that I incurred, the coup, contra-coup concussion, mm-hmm. which is where your brain, you know, it slams into one side of the skull and ricochets into the other and then back to the other, kind of like pinball, right? Um, so that was the diagnosis. I was remember talking to the the doctor, the neurologist, and saying, you know, um, what – what exactly is it? What what happened? He explained the coup contra coup, and and I said, well, I know that in concussions they usually have about three levels, you know, one to three being the severest. And and he and I said, well, what was this? And he said, oh, this was a four, you know, <laughs> this was an off the charts. You can't even really label it a concussion because it was it was off the charts of of what a concussion is diagnosed as. Um, so that was helpful to hear that it was that serious and that life threatening. But yet here I am still today. So, you know, hopefully that gives a little hope um, to anybody who's going through it. And how Mm -hmm. interesting, too, you know, because my skull broke twice, that's probably part of what saved my life because it allowed the brain, right? You understand? Yes, it allowed the brain to swell. And Mm -hmm. those first 24 hours, they were, you know, ready to pounce if they needed to drill. But because of the brokenness, um, the expansion of the skull actually helped the injury or helped the brain swell. So um, had that not happened, they would have had to go, you know, go in and drill and almost create a break, so to speak. So um, mm-hmm. it ended up being this weirdly bizarre thing that sometimes a broken skull can actually be this, the very thing that saves our brain. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's why a lot of people have craniectomies. Um, They actually have to remove a part of the skull to allow that swelling. Um, So, yeah, I can absolutely see how having, you know, multiple breaks kind of gave your brain that ability to expand in your skull. Um, Yeah, you know, it's so, our our bodies are just so fascinating and frustrating at the same time, but just so fascinating and as you were talking, you know, you called it your bland personality. I called it like I, I called it flat effect. Like I had no, um, I, I, I like didn't get excited. I also didn't get angry. I just stayed very like flat. Um, yeah. I remember I, I couldn't read uh, like social cues. I couldn't grasp sarcasm. I just took everything very literally. Um, and so I always told when someone was Joking. Um, it, it was so weird. And, and like, as you're in it, you know that it's weird, but you don't know how to change it. Um, I think that's like the most surreal part of brain injury is like you're in the midst of it and you're living it, but it just seems surreal. It doesn't even seem real. Yes. Yes. I can definitely relate with that too. And yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem real at all, or it just seems strange. Or maybe the defense mechanism is 
um, I was like, well, I'm lying on the couch and I'm tired. And, you know, it reminded me of like when you're sick, when you're out with a really bad flu or a bad cold and you just are kind of senseless, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Right. But it just took a longer time than your average flu or cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot longer. So, Catherine, yep. at what point were you able to get back on your bike? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, it was oh, it was two two months until I could go outside and ride my bike. Um, but before that, you know, my athlete instinct kicked in, and you know, as soon as I was out of the hospital, my first thought was, well, when can I ride? when can I ride? You know, that's very much that physical element too, of your body is used to doing what it was doing for a job um, every day. So even though I understood why I wasn't able to get back on a bike just yet, mentally I understood why, but physically my body wanted nothing more than to be on the bicycle. Um, That's what it had been doing for the last five years professionally, you know, and the last, uh, the five years before that as an amateur. So it was a big decade of, of uh, trying to, you know, tell my body like, Hey, you have to rest from what you're used to. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, so immediately I wanted to get back on the bike and, you know, talking to the doctor, I would say maybe two or three weeks afterward. Um, and keep in mind at this point, I'm still on the Kepra anti-seizure for about uh, six to eight weeks. Right. So there is definitely no going outside for a while, but in cycling, we have stationary trainers, where you can hook your, your road bike up to a, you know, a platform on the back wheel and you can spin along as if you were on a, a Peloton, but it's your own bike, you know, hooked into a machine. So for me, that was really something that um, I, I wanted to get back to because I hooked my dad, my bike up to uh, the trainer on my dad's porch. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I could get outside and ride for a little. And I would say two or three weeks after the crash, um, the doctor said, okay, well, here's what you can do. You know, hook up the bike and go sit down. But for the first day, just ride five minutes, you know, just five minutes because you need to check your balance and see if even riding mm-hmm. on a stationary bike, you might, that's too wobbly, maybe, you know, and make sure that your dad checks in, like ask him to there well, you ride just in case, you know, um, and uh, I was fine with the five minutes and then we, we bumped it up to 10 and then 15 and 20. So probably somewhere there at the end of the first month, I was able to ride a half an hour on a stationary trainer. And, um, that helps tremendously, both mentally and physically. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think especially as, um, you know, a professional athlete, you're, you know, that's, I, I just, I remember having Ben Utech on my podcast. Um, he was, uh, he played Indianapolis Colts. I'm like, I'm blanking where he played. Um, he won the Super Bowl with the Colts. Um, and he talked, he, he ended up having a career ending concussion, but he talked about how he was an athlete. So he went about his TBI recovery, looking at it from an athlete's point of view, like, you know, he'd blown out his knee and he hurt his hip in the past and he had to go through, through PT. And he's like, yeah, it was uncomfortable and painful and it sucked. He's like, but I knew I had to get through it. So that's how he approached his brain injury. Like 
reading and doing anything with his eyes was really challenging and but he knew that he had to work through it um and you know I thought that was really fascinating to hear it like put into that type of perspective and I imagine that was similar for you um you know like you're used to conditioning and and being active and I don't know if you've had other injuries in your career but um you know, I assume that you sort of went after it the same way, um, knowing that, you know, you had, like, basically, you look at your brain as a muscle, right? And um, yep. you you have to, you have to work it out just like you would your hamstring or your quad or your calf, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, I think there's that, like, act uh, that athlete defense mechanism where, if you if you go down in a sport, the whole reflex of being like, no, 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 I'm okay, I'm okay, keep playing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's kind of that is what is instilled in any competitive athlete, regardless of of sport, right? So, you know, I can definitely relate to that being part of the impact of being like, oh no, no, I'm fine. Look, I'm alive, <laughs> I'm well. I, okay, maybe I'm a little sleepy Brush and I'm off. tired. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. And I think I was even able to recognize that that's my, my brain was doing. It was saying like, no, 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 back in the game, back in the saddle. Um, but I also wasn't stupid. I'm like, okay, you just had a really big injury, you know, go easy, take time. But it also, um, that impulse and that reflect made me create the goal of saying, okay, um, I want to get back to race form. I want to get back in the saddle. Yeah. And I, I want to race, I had this, um, you know, this goal where I wanted to race once more so that I did not have to end my professional racing career on a brain injury. Um, mm, yeah. That to me became a goal, you know, and one that I was, it, it was the kind of goal where I was like, okay, listen, I, I want to get back and do one more race, but not in some stupid way of like, I have to win. I have to be all out cut through and I've got to win this race, but more like being at the race is the win. And um, so that became a tool that I used in my healing, like get yourself well, get yourself better, take time. And when the doctors say it's okay, um, then uh, see if you can do one more final race. And the other thing that was interesting about the timing of this whole crash is that in 2016, Four months before the crash, I publicly announced and made the decision that 2016 would be my last year of racing. I would retire from the pro ranks at the end of 2016. And I'm so glad that I made that decision four months prior um, because then it kind of gave me that liberty to, you know, to retire without the the crash. Yeah. Reason why. I'm lucky. Not every athlete has that. There are plenty of athletes who – you know, upon being concussed or, or with a TBI, that's it. That's the end of their career. And I feel for them because that was certainly, but not by choice, right. uh, To choose that path of retirement. And I had that, that luxury, honestly, of saying, okay, I've got this, I've undergone or am going through this terrible TBI, but if there's a shining light at the end of this tunnel that maybe I could race again, I want to work toward that. Um, So that's what I did. And I was very, very fortunate that about five months later, um, I was given the clear to be able to race, but under the guise of um, don't race aggressively, 
watch yourself, you know, uh, don't do this in a cutthroat style. And the team that I was on uh, sent me to kind of a farewell one more time race. And in cycling, we have stage races, which are five day cumulative events where, you know, the points and the results of each day are added to the next, to the next. And in this race on the fourth day out of five was what's called a criterium. And that's a very, very fast lap course of a race. And if any crash were to happen, that was probably the highest, um, highest probability of a day where a crash could occur. And so I made the decision that I would race the first three days and bow out on the fourth for, for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. And luckily my teammates, they were wonderful. The team, all my teammates were like, I get it. Good idea. Cause for those who don't know, cycling is very much a team sport where, you know, the, um, the worker bees are working for the leader of that particular team. Um, And so for me to bow out as a worker bee and to hope that our leader would be okay with that, um, she was. And she said, I would do the same thing if I were in your position. So just, you know, do what you need to do for this race. And so I did. And that also felt really good to be like, okay, I raced three out of the five days. I bowed out on my terms rather than risk an injury and uh, had the support of my team. So it was a really awesome um farewell to pro cycling for me and prioritizing my brain first you know yeah yeah and and so i'm curious you know you don't remember you know any of your accident um did you have apprehension getting back on for that first first time you raced again um or was it more of a blessing that you didn't remember any of it and it didn't affect you I do think it was a blessing. I don't remember, you know, it's so wild what the mind can do. It can just drop the curtain yeah. of time mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, and from here you won't remember, you know, so I'm, I'm fortunate. I, I don't remember the crash, but what's interesting is that my body remembered. And, yes. Um, yes. So yes. true. So that is, this is what's really fascinating to me. And even today, I'll notice that my body can do this. So as I mentioned in the beginning of this call, describing the peloton, which is that tight-knit, amoeba-shaped group of a cyclist, cycling that rolls together, right? And you see, you know, anywhere it could be 100 women, um, sometimes closer to 200 that are all riding along together. And it's a very formulaic idea. Those of us who are in the pro ranks feel very comfortable in that situation. We know how to position our bikes that we're you know, less at risk, but, um, that's how tight the the Peloton is. So for me, when we, when I got back to the race, what I noticed was that my body wanted to give a lot more space between the rider ahead of me. Um, whereas usually we're tucked up really, really close, just near, you know, just a skew of their back wheel. Our front wheel is just a skew of their back wheel. Um, within millimeters or, you know, centimeters or inches. Um, And this time my body was like, nope, back it up. You know, you want like a few feet between uh, the the woman ahead of you. And that's not efficient necessarily for drafting, et cetera. You know, you you usually want to be as close as you can. But I thought it was interesting that my body was kind of had the warning lights on, like too close, too close. And um, I was able to kind of mentally work through it a little bit. Um, But 
I just find that fascinating how much the body does remember. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes people, right? Isn't that wild? It's, it's so cool how it's built into our system. And I'll say this. A lot of people will ask me the question, am I afraid to go out and ride um, on, on a road with cars? And for me, that's not an issue because cars had nothing to do with my crash. Um, right. I, you know, but I'm sure if it were, if that were the case, if, if I were hit by a car and that's what caused the crash, I'm sure that my body would feel like, no, you're not going to ride on the roads again. So I think it really has to do with the situation at play. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so I fell on the ice. I was walking down a fairly steep incline um, Mm. and I I'm getting a lot better. But for a very long time, any sort of incline, like even a ramp walking up into a building or something or down, not up, um, my body would just tense up. Like, it was so interesting to me. Like, I wouldn't even think about it consciously. And I'd start walking down this ramp, and I'd be like, oh. And it just would just freak me out. And and my body knew the right incline. It wasn't just any incline. Um, Yeah, so I I do. I think that's so fascinating. Um, There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it talks a lot about how our body stores our trauma and, and remembers things, even if we don't consciously remember them. Um, So that's a really good book about all that. (laughs) So Catherine, we are just about out of time. um, And I would love to wrap up by just asking you, what are your final thoughts for our listeners today? Um, You know, anyone listening who may still be struggling or maybe they're an athlete and want to get back to their sport. um, You know, what, what do you, what are your final words for them? Your final thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I would say for all of you who are struggling, you know, hang on and understand that this, it does take a lot of time. Don't compare yourself to anybody else's journey, but whenever you can gain a little hope and inspiration from someone's journey, definitely do Mm -hmm. that. Um, Absolutely. And if, and when possible, get outside your brain, so to speak, you know, one of the things that helped me a lot was um, I started doing volunteer work, you know, in areas I was passionate about, whether working with kids or animals or just any situation where you're able to do volunteer work, it really helps paint a bigger picture of just being patient and giving to those around you. Uh, for some reason, that really connected with me as I was going through the TBI. Like, what can I do? What's in my control during this time where everything else seems out of my control? Volunteer work really mm, helped get yeah. me in a better frame of mind. I know it's weird with the pandemic. There's not as much opportunity to volunteer with other people, but um, put that on your radar as something and just stay positive. Stay with it. Healing is possible. and Hang in there. Yeah, wonderful. I love that about, you know, volunteering, finding finding something meaningful. That's really a great, great tip. Catherine, thank you so much for being here today. This has been just lovely connecting with you. And um, thank you just for sharing your story with our listeners today. Thank you, Amy. I really appreciate all you do for all of us out there with TBIs. Oh, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. I hope that you have enjoyed today's episode and um, gained some wonderful golden nuggets from Catherine. 
And just another reminder that you can always find previous episodes on most streaming platforms, such as iTunes, or you can find them directly at facesoftbi.com. And you can continue to support the podcast through my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Zalmer. And be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And don't forget to join Amy's TBI tribe on Facebook to connect with other caregivers and survivors. And just another big thank you to our sponsor, Integrated Brain Centers. You can go ahead and find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. Thank you all for listening and thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I will see you in the next episode.